Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Morris O'Keefe and this week's podcast is in conjunction with the Kerryman newspaper and it will include many fascinating voices from our oral history archive, taken from recordings which were compiled over the years with staff members. And the podcast will include many fascinating stories and memories of working with the newspaper and will provide a great insight on how deeply embedded the Kerryman really is in the community and also with the Kerry diaspora around the world. The voices you will hear include Don Nolan, who joined the Kerryman in the 1960s as works manager and was the grandson of one of the first founding members of the newspaper, Daniel Nolan. By the time I arrived on the scene, I was third generation. That was the, in the 60s. Con Hulen, who began his journalistic career with the Kerryman. And I began long way within the Kerryman. I gave, I gave him every help I could. I was very, very shy when I was a child. I'm still very shy too. Michael O'Regan. When I joined Con was um, a columnist, and I have to say this without peer, uh, Con was box officer. Donald Hickey, he also started his career with the Kerryman. We were in a smallish enough rules room, full of smoke, because at least half the staff were smoking. Some of them were even pipe smokers. Seamus McConville joined the Kerryman in 1957. And he was editor of the paper for many years. When I came to the Cayman, it was considered to be the number one provincial paper in Ireland. Miholo Lynchik, he joined in 1948 and was also a member of the Irish Masters Printers Association. But if you happen to go to him at a time when he was perplexed about something or whether he was worried about something, you know what I mean? <laughs> and he didn't think your, 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 your approach necessitated attention at that moment. Uh, he dismissed you. Joe Gallivan joined in 1945 and he was company representative for many years. And these boys were, would come out. Carryman, news, court and all that. Say to be Friday, they wait for the court. And in the sports department, Eamon Horn. Dan was letting me have it like, but so I, I'm afraid I kind of blew the, my lid at that stage. And, and John Barry. I mean, the Kerry members regarded it absolutely as the gospel, going back to years like. So let's get started with Don Nolan giving an outline of the Kerryman newspaper history. While most people seem to accept that it started in 1904, in actual fact it started in 1902, 
In July of '02, Morris Griffin, uh, Dan Nolan, Tom Nolan, they got together the princely sum of £500 capital. Now, by today's standards, that is so small. Yet, that was quite an achievement in 1902. And with that amount of capital, they set off to acquire the means of printing a newspaper. And it was August of 1904 before they actually produced the, the first edition. Uh, with the £500, they actually bought, they bought a machine, if I recall, it was um, a Royal Dawson in London for £80. That was the big investment. And I think they rented, uh, on a, a yearly basis, some typesetting equipment. It had two faces, two typefaces, uh, for the printing of posters, and that was actually their first printing job. The first thing they ever printed was the poster advertising the first edition of the Kerryman. But they had something like 20 typefaces. They had a brass uh, cutter for cutting brass and metal. And there was some other item, I forget which now, but that was how they spent their £500 capital at the start, renting uh, some premises and getting going. Seamus McConville talks about the political aspect of the Kerryman newspaper at that time. Of course, I mean, initially the, 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 the philosophy of the, of the founders of the Kerryman, Tom Nolan, particularly he was the first editor, uh, they, create, they established a paper. They wanted to establish a nationalist paper to counter the unionist or loyalist papers of the time. So, um, yes, there was an, that was a, a strong influence there. And if you read the early editions of the paper anyway, they had no mercy on, on, the, on the, 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 the barons, the business barons of the town. So, uh, for that, and obviously, they represented the business barons in those days, represented a, uh, the lo loyalist, uh, loyalists or king's people, king or king, queen's people. Morris Griffin, Tom Nolan, Dan Nolan were very nationalistic. They would have been old Sinn Féin at the time. Uh, I actually have a little primer, the Gaelic League's primer, yeah. belonging to my grandfather. A small little book uh, from the 19th century. And, you know, learning the Irish language wasn't in vogue, but the first publications had appeared and they had their little primers and were passing it on. I believe my grandfather used to do a lot of uh, voluntary teaching, trying to get people to do things. They brought out an evening paper in 1914, The Liberator, uh, and a letter was published in The Liberator in 1916 advocating agitation on behalf, on behalf of Austin Stack, who was imprisoned at the time. Um, because of the publication of that letter, the British forces and the police arrived, and the Kerrymen ceased uh, printing in Tralee. But the Gaelic press in Dublin printed it for them, mm -hmm. and the paper itself was smuggled back with helpful uh, railwaymen at the time. It would have been the Great Southern and Western Railway before CIE. So they helped in distributing the paper and getting it back into Tralee. Uh, things continued okay then, publication-wise, until about 1921, when Major McKinnon was shot dead in the old golf club. Uh, the forces came into the Kerryman and demanded that big black type bars be printed around his obituary. Well, I don't think they intended printing an obituary in the first place, uh, but they refused anyway, and there was a few grenades and things put under the machine, 
and they were out of action until 1923. Morris Griffin died in 1928. My grandfather, Dan Nolan, died in 1938. Tom Nolan died in 1939. So there were the three of them. By 1939, they were they were, had departed the scene, but uh, Tom's son, Dan, had arrived on the scene in the 1920s, and Dan had extraordinary energy, and he went forward building up the paper from there. Uh, he was a great editorial man and a wonderful marketing man. He took over as MD in 1939 at the outbreak of war. Uh, now, he had been trying to get the older men to buy in extra newsprint as it looked like war, uh, and so they started in 1937 to buy in extra newsprint. Now, the Munich uh, meeting happened and war was averted for a further year, but they continued to buy newsprint. And they actually had enough newsprint in stock to get through the war. Employment went down during the war because the job printing side suffered. Uh, and then after the war, things obviously improved. Uh, the new premises, e extra premises, they had bought the old Quinell's premises uh, down at the end of the rock in the back of the market. And that was extended out into Russell Street at one stage, and another little part was extended further up the rock. Michal Lynchik, the chairman actually set a standard for all the other provincial newspapers under Dan's ages. And he was very highly respected among the newspaper, particularly the provincial newspaper publishing people. I learned this afterwards when I, when I, when I became president of the Irish Master Princes Association. Uh, and as I said, just again, when I first time I was put up for membership, Dan was against it because he thought that my trade union background, you see, that I might sort of uh, be, a, how would you call it, uh, an undercover agent for the, for the unions. But of course, that was never, you know, once I became a member of the association, I, I, I was a member of the association, and that was that. Hall describes Dan Nolan's moods. He was very fair, but if you happen to go to him at a time when he was perplexed about something or whether he was worried about something, you know what I mean, <laughs> and he didn't think your, 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 your approach necessitated attention at that moment, uh, he dismissed you, dismiss you without any kind of, uh, what would I say, grace and favour. <laughs> but I, I always had an affection for the man for this reason, that he made a Kerryman what it was. The Kerryman was, was Ireland's number one provincial oh, newspaper. Joe Gallivan and Michal Olenczyk. That was Dan's boast. Mm -hmm. And I think number two was the Connacht Tribune, even though I thought it was the Limerick leader, but no. Yeah. Then you had the Dodd Independent right. and the Limerick leader then. But I would say if you were to analyse all the provincial newspapers, the Kerryman would make a great claim to have been one of the best, if not the best. When I, when I came to the Kerryman, it was considered to be the number one provincial paper in Ireland. Seamus McConville, journalist and newspaper editor. I was uh, on the staff, the editorial staff of the Irish News Agency in Dublin and we used to provide a, a service to weekly newspapers, including the Carryman. So uh, I have been, I, I think I wrote my first piece for the Carryman in 1954 as, as a member of the I, I, Irish News Agency staff. And was that the Jubilee of...? Well, that was for the Golden Jubilee of the Cayman. So, uh, 50 years later, I found myself writing for the centenary edition of the Cayman. Donald Hickey. Seamus McConville was a brilliant mentor to me. Uh, he was a great all-round journalist. Seamus <clears throat> effectively ran the paper. 
Mm-hmm. Con Casey was at that stage a very old man. He was a war of, a war of independence veteran. He was, I would say, well over 70 years of age. He was a father figure in the newsroom. He wrote the editorial every week. He was, he was very well respected. But the day-to-day running of the paper, Seamus. Seamus organised the reporters. He organised all the stories. He helped to make up the pages. Yeah. He effectively ran the paper. Seamus McConville remembers early editions of the Carryman having a literary content. Well, you have to think of the say the areas early early twentieth century. There were very few libraries around, and I mean, you, don't, you didn't have the proliferation of books that you have now. So the the man who got his weekly paper, it not only did it provide him with news, but it also provided him with say, the serialization of of uh, books of of uh, um, literary interest. I, I mean, I've seen uh, Kickham's, Charles Kickham's books being serialised in the, in the Carryman. I've seen The Nun of Kenmare serialised in the Carryman and many other books. So it was providing news uh, as well as a, a kind of a, a literary content that in subsequent in, in subsequent years obviously was the, the role was fulfilled by the library providing a book service and uh, there are uh, many people who passed through the editorial hall halls of the carrymen went on to uh, fulfill distinguished roles in other areas in journalism uh, you've had what well, Tim Tim Vaughan who's editor of the examiner he was uh, he was he he got his first job in journalism with the Kerryman. Pascal Sheehy, uh, southern editor of RT, he, his first editorial job was in the Kerryman. Um, and then you have, of course, you have Gerard Collin, who was, uh, who was the editor of The Star. He, he came from Clare to the Kerryman, and he spent a good many years with us. When I was coming to Kerry for somebody, uh, remember, I was warned that I'd never leave it. <laughs> I'd never leave it, that Kerry would be the would be the end of my ambitions, but I have no regrets. Well, if I didn't get along, I was in the Kellyman. I gave him every help I could. In the 1960s, the Writers' Week in the Stoll were starting off, and Con Houlihan remembers that time. But I'm funny. When I see a group of writers, I think they run away. <laughs> I'll tell you why. They've all had egos. They don't, they don't talk. They, 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 they preach and they orate. They, they never listen to anybody. I'm telling you, writers generally, they're okay one by one, but when they come together in a group, take flight and go pretty quickly. Can work from pubs all the time. He worked in pubs and from pubs and through a network of pubs. If you wanted to meet Con, you met him in a pub. Donald Hickey, who worked with the Kerryman newspaper in the early 70s, has fond memories of Con Houlihan. Con would ring then, and I was the junior in the office, and I was, a lot of my time was spent answering phones, you know. And they'd give a phone for, for Seamus or for Tony Mead or John Barry or whoever. And Con would say, I'm here, I'm here in the brogue. Come over, send something over. Down with the phone. And then I'd say to Con Casey, Mr. Casey, he was only known as Mr. Casey. Mr. Casey, that's Con Hoolan. He's He has arrived with his copy. He's over in the brogue. Okay, Donald, you go over and connect it from him. So, so I, over to the brogue I would go and then I would find Con inside sitting down. <clears throat> And we got to know each other quite well because it was a weekly ritual, you see. And what are we having? Con, it's it. Con, no, I can't drink really because it's <laughs> two o'clock or three o'clock in the day and I can't go back into the office smelling drink. You know, bottle is out, boy. 
you're not bottle of stout. I ain't bottle of stout for this by here. And he would insist on having, I'd have to sit down and drink the bottle of stout <laughs> with Con. Now, I wasn't a very practiced drinker at the time, but well, take me a good half an hour to drink a bottle of stout. But I, I was, ring, I was I, of course, he, he regaled me with stories. You couldn't, yeah. Con was composed of company. Well, I could do pub now, and I don't pub. I don't pub. That's again, gentlemen, I've always been. You were, you were a man that, that uh, you, you enjoyed <laughs> oh, going in and you, evening. Oh, thank you. And is it true that you used to write the article for the next morning's paper on, 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 in the pub that, uh, that no, evening? I know, but I was modest. Con Holen used to write on parchment. Parchment. Tommy Quirk and Joe Gallivan, and he had a big scrawl. But he was he he was uh, his writing was clear enough. There was a deadline for receiving copy. It was Tuesday evening, and come Wednesday they wouldn't have got Con's copy yet. Then Con would arrive over in the Brogue Inn. I don't know what it was by Brennan's at the time before yes. Bill Kerby came along. Mm-hmm. But he would have parchment, you know what, like what, bot, what bottles wrapped in that big parchment paper. And if he came to something like such a vote, maybe a little French one or a Spanish, he'd put overhead in, he'd type it in so as the, the, the reader or, or the printer would, would get it correctly. You know, he was, he was methodical in his own way. And of course his stuff was red. My God, he, he just, just gobbled up. I can't hold him turn of phrase. I've never, in my own opinion, he, he was wonderful at these short articles, you know. Con loved the game of rugby and he played with his local club in Castle Island. I think you know, we come back to playing sport, yeah. Castle Island, for your town, rugby is dug in there. Of course, those Gaelic football too, they take him there, they're symbiotic. But rugby meant the world to me, that's it, you know. I was very, very shy when I was a child, I'm still very shy too. But when I played with Castle Island long ago, after a couple of years, I became captain. And when I down cruise, I said, I didn't to make a speech. I would have paid anybody in, in, in the team to give him, to, to pounds to give him, but I, I was, I, I had to do it, and I did it. And that, in a way, was a, a turning point in my life, a useful place. The mm-hmm. simple thing of having to make a speech in close hotel to the Gallagher Club or whoever they were. It it diminished my shyness and you know. It 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 it, it, it diminished my self consciousness. Uh, it made me a little, a little bother. Again, rugby to me it meant the world to me, argues mean the world to me. Again, playing rugby, you're part of a team, you're part of a society. And you, you if you have a good day, you know people the well you have a bad day, they they laugh at you. But that's part of life. He was one of the few people that could get away with handwritten copy going to that paper. And he was his column was eagerly awaited throughout the county because Khan became a kind of a legendary figure and everyone wanted to hear what he was saying. And it it was it was a key part of that newspaper. And Khan came in regularly. Khan never missed an edition, I would say. He was always in time. He used to get I think he'd get a taxi in from Castle. He lived in Castle Islands. Michael O'Regan also has fond memories of Con Houlihan. Con was himself, you know, I mean, he lived in Castle Island. Uh, he was never a man for sartorial elegance. Uh, you know, the, the gansey uh, and the trousers and the hair was longish hair, the trench coat. And when he spoke to you, of course, the hand up to the face. Uh, incredibly witty, I mean, uh, very sharp. I remember he came into the office one day with Conum, came into the Kerryman office. 
And one of my more, perhaps, cynical colleagues was down at the back of the office typing out something or other. And he looked up and, of course, Con was dressed as usual and flowing hair and all that. And he says, well, Con, he says, you're ready for the bog, you see. To which Con replied, I am. He says, are you? That's the way I am. I didn't get out any book. I wasn't taught it, but that's the way I am. When I go to a game tomorrow morning, I have no step time at all. And I have to take notes. I have to do because I won't be there as a, as a junior pub, blow by blow. If I had to do by blow by blow, I'd take notes, of course. I go to see, try to see the game as part, as part, of, as part of a whole, to capture, to capture the music of the game and how the, the, mental, the mental state of the players, how it, how it, changed, how it changed, transformed their play, the play of the team. Because in, in any game, there's a, there's a psychological battle going on. There are breaking points and there are turning points. They can change the whole, the whole atmosphere of a game. When I joined, Con was um, a columnist. And I have to say this without peer. Uh, Con was box office at that time. I mean, I knew people outside of Kerry who bought the Kerryman to read Con's weekly column. Mm. He was that uh, huge. Uh, 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 he was... He... he he was magnificent. I mean, he, he had a following. Uh, he was courageous, beautiful writer. You know, whether the, the, the sporting and literary references were just magnificent. Oh, I'll never forget the morning in 75. Dublin had won the championship in 74. They were in great stead. They beat a very good Galway team by four or five points. We were playing, they were playing us in Timorese. And uh, that morning, I, was, I wasn't even here then. I was even in town. I was in flat. And the same day, you know, John Daphne and that day, and Kerry had £700 money. So that was my life savings. I got this mad intuition. I tried to make bookies, mostly with pubs, you know, friends and public offices, up and down, up and up and up and the top shelf. And went up to Croke Park. That time there was a certain prevalence of city and country across the world, you know. But I think that's fading away very rapidly because the country had taken over now, anyway. <laughs> anyway, I went up to Croke Park. Stood in the, the, the mile rain behind the canal, the canal go up, which I love. I, was, I think he was born there, I'm not so sure. Found in a basket like Moses. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> and I'll forget it, after about seven minutes, he had this little mind, very well. He committed a very foolish fall under the, the old two stand. I don't know what's up the free. And he stroked into the Gullmouth, and Penny Cullen and, and John Darty decorated. The ball went in the ground, it was in two foot cut into the net. Johnny, Johnny, he can't say. And from that moment, I felt. When they're fighting, they can do no good. We, we won the match, and I won my £700. As you said, no, there are three things in life which are important to you. They won't guarantee you happiness, happiness but they're a foundation. You said, he, there are three, and the first thing is, be happy at your work. You said, if you aren't, goodbye, the thing else counts. Mm -hmm. yeah. You must have, he called a social group, people to whom you can talk, maybe a two or four or five, you know. He said, there's a third thing too, you know, which is very difficult to define. You want some person to whom you're very close. Now, it needn't be a sexual relationship. It could be a man, it could be a woman. You want somebody to whom you're very, very close. You want an intimate. He said, they're the three basics. And he said, they won't guarantee you. He said, they're the basic, the, the basic tenets of my philosophy. The Kerryman newspaper offices was situated at the bottom of Rock Street. And here, Donald Hickey describes what the premises was like. Yes, when I started, uh, we, we were in an old building, an old rickety old building. I remember 
first morning I went up the stairs, the rickety, it was a kind of a Dickensian set up there, you know, walking in the front office, then you were directed to stairs, and it was creaking, twisting stairs, and that, you led, that led you into the newsroom. An all-male newsroom, by the way, at the time, there were no women journalists in the paper. Downstairs then, on the floor, as we used to call it, you had the printing, the printing works, where... Uh, the paper was made up on the stone, as we used to call it, and it was actually printed. You had a huge press. And all the printing work, very noisy place with machines going all the time. And Seamus would be up and down with the copy, which we called what's called newspaper stories that were typed out and all that. That was called the cop. Seamus would be up and down. He'd be dealing with Tom Carrick, who was the, who was the foreman down below. And he... <clears throat> that was the way it worked, and we were in a smallish enough rules room full of smoke because at least half the staff were smoking. Some of them were even pipe smokers. So there was only one window in the room that looked out to Rock Street and across to the Brogan and across to Dan Connors pub and a couple of shops. It was right in the heart of the town. The Independent News and Media, then known as the Independent Newspapers Limited, acquired the Kerryman in 1972. And it went under big changes at that time. And Don Nolan explains. By the time I arrived on the scene, I was third generation. That was the in the 60s, the later part of the 60s. You know, there was quite a good complement of people there. They, they actually had 122 working. Uh, that was the total workforce by the late 60s into 1970. And then a decision was taken to move the plant and to change the process. So the process was going from the old uh, hot metal letterpress system to lithography, which is a different system of printing. Uh, new presses, new investment were acquired, so a green field site in Clash was acquired. We eventually opened in January of 73. Uh, that was quite a busy time because we had to get everything out of Rock Street physically and start up in Clash. The new big printing press uh, was in position, had been in position for some time, and all of the new side of the business was there, but all of the older machines had to be manhandled and physically brought up uh, to clash. Now, some of these were incredibly heavy, and I have a, a crooked finger as a result of getting it caught under one of the machines as, as we were moving it. Uh, but it was eventually done. The, the week of first week of production was a nightmare because the big 90 horsepower motor on the new press um, packed it in on the night that the presses ran. <laughs> there was consternation. What do we do? Here's a new process. We have to print. I think I suppose it was nearly running at over 40,000 copies at the time, and we were stuck. So we got on to the Connick Tribune uh, and asked them if they would could find out if they could oblige us by printing if we brought up the plates. Now, the new plates were very light, so you could transport them easily, but we had to get some place to print them. Uh, they agreed to actually print the first edition if we had failed to get the machine going. So there were a number of electri electrical experts from town looking at the winding of the big motor. Um, we worked right through the night. We were actually ready to go to Galway with the plates, and they fixed it. So... We were behind schedule. We had to all hands on deck at that stage. It was a 48-hour shift as far as I was concerned. We got going. Uh, we got the papers out and Clash started off. Tommy Quirk remembers that big change. I started as a compositor and we had moved from hot metal 
into the computer scene, direct input agreements and all this kind of thing. And uh, the MD, or the works manager at the time, was Don Nolan, and then we were taken over by the Irish Independent, and I can remember reading a letter from uh, Mr. Bartle Pritchard, guaranteeing us our jobs and the future, etc., which they did, in fairness to them. By that stage, I had moved into the, the union movement, and uh, when the late Michael J. Fitzgerald, who was the branch secretary of the Tralee Killarney branch of the NGA, he retired and I took his position. And uh, all the journalists and all the people working for the independent group, and we were part of the independent group, we didn't know what the future was going to be and, and so on and so forth. And the questions were being asked and there were no answers. So the papers didn't come out and the Kerryman didn't come out that week. And I remember uh, Gayborn ringing me up. She, he was obviously doing a current affairs programme at the time and, and asking me, did this, did this ever happen before? And I said, yes, just once before, when the black and tans closed the Kerryman. Actually, the journalist walked upstairs and we used to have to deliver the papers to them. They'd have to check, as Bihala said earlier, they'd have to check all the pages and check the paper which was printed. We even had the reader's department. And, you know, they checked whatever I type, printed by the, the guys outside the line, type operators, and that, the Paddy Foley, the famous PF, was walked in the reader's department to the carryman. John Barry, head of the sports section in the paper, Technology changed in newspaper work all the time. From every, se every second year, you would have new technology coming in, and you had to be on top of that. Like, as I say, we had to make up in, over in Clash, we had to make up all the sports pages ourselves, yeah. and all the editorial guys there, there had people specialising in layouts, but for us, we had to do all that ourselves. And that made the job very, very difficult. Yeah, there, there were eight interesting years. Uh, and, I mean, I've, I did everything, reporting. I was a columnist, uh, um, you know, a feature writer, news reporter. And there were interesting years in Kerry, and interesting years to be there. Also, at that time, Morris, you have to remember, print was king. Print was huge. And the Kerryman, when I joined, had a monopoly. There was no other local paper in Kerry. Uh, I think the Limerick leader may have come into North Kerry a bit, but, but there was, you know, the Kerryman was the county paper and huge sale, including indeed outside Kerry, for instance, among immigrants uh, in, in London, New York and elsewhere. And it was regarded at that time as probably the leading provincial paper, with a very, very strong reputation for uh, being professional. Uh, and I would say as well, up, uh, it was a quality upmarket newspaper. Uh, why do you think that was? I think it's a credit to the people who built it up over the years, you know, uh, um, long before I came. Uh, th there, was, uh, there was a certain quality about it, and uh, Dan Nolan, whom I, I didn't really know, uh, the independent newspapers that bought the Kerryman about a year before I joined, but Dan Nolan still had an office in the building, and I knew him casually because he was, he was still involved with Anvil Books, and uh, he built it up with, with a very good team of journalists, uh, actually the, some outstanding journalists over the years, and they built it up to a quality paper, and it had a certain standing in the media. Uh, uh, so, uh, and also, of course, 
it couldn't be better located if you think about it, Kerry, with the literary tradition, uh, you know, the, the kind of scholarly tradition, uh, the emphasis on education, uh, which I think was very strong, probably because of the geographical isolation in that, and of course, uh, the, G, the sporting prow prowess, you know, you win, win All-Ireland after All-Ireland. It helps sell papers, you know. Uh, so from that point of view, there was rich material within the county for the Kerryman. Joe Gallivan was the company representative with the Kerryman for many years. I remember about Sean Moriarty, he was not a Sean Evel. Sean had come in in the morning, first thing he says, is, is Dan around? Sean and I were on the road, we were, we were company reps. So I was in the Cork, North Cork area mostly, where I was with Kerry, except South Kerry. But we, little Morris Minor vans we had at the time, and they were used for the delivery of the Kerryman on Thursday night and Friday. But we used to travel in those and do our job collecting accounts and collecting advertising, whatever. And when Dan would come in in the morning, first thing I'd go off would get into the van and get the hell out of it. I'd go way out to the country and do my job and come back. But he'd, he'd have cooled down by then, you know, but he was, at times, he was rather impossible. Somebody in, in the, working in the Kerryman left Dan Nolan one evening to the fact that there was an item in the, the Evening Herald saying that Mick O'Connell was injured, you know, and there was a question mark, and of course this was going to print because Perry Foley had written his preview well in advance of that. Eamon Horn worked with the Kerryman newspaper for many years, and here he recalls a time that he had to meet the managing director, Dan Nolan. And of course, all hell broke loose, Dan Nolan, but I was supposed to be in charge of getting stuff into the pages, you know, and uh, one word bothered another. Paddy Foley was summoned from, he was attending the, the movies. So they had a flash of message on the screen, Paddy Foley reports of the Kerryman. Uh, John Barry was a young, very young guy then. He was long joining the Kerryman. And uh, there was one or two more there. I think Sean Moriarty, the late Sean Moriarty. So Dan was letting me have it like, but so I, I'm afraid I kind of blew the, my lid at that stage. And, he told him in no uncertain terms what he could do with the job. So I left, and uh, but in subsequent days I said I'd never go back there again. And but he he kept sending people to the, my house in Brit Street, you know. But I just forget about what happened and come back. So I eventually did after about a week, and ever after that we got on like famously. So. Yeah. A Mrs. Coffee from Milk Market Lane in Tralee ran a business where she employed newspaper boys. And Joe Galvin remembers that time. Mrs. Coffee had, had about six or eight young urchins, more or less, and they waited at the back door of the caramel, which is in the market. I remember Jimmy Lavin was in charge of that. He lined them up, the papers were printed, and each of those young lads had his own little street, he might, you might be bored, boy and so on, and, and then they'd all go off together like a shot of a gun, and they'd run, carry man, tell me so, but there was a, there was a chap came down from, he was working with, with Eddie Murphy, Irish Life, was that New Ireland, Irish, one of those, anyhow? No, New Ireland, yeah, New Ireland. No, I don't, his name, I know, sorry, yeah, but I can't, but he came to Tralee, and these boys were, would come out, carry man, News, court and all that, say to be Friday, they'll wait for the court. 
And this fellow said, I can understand what they're saying now, the Kellyman, but what the heck are they saying then? Court and all this. And he said, I'm not going to ask anybody. He knew he'd been to leave for a few years, and I'd figure it out for myself. Two or three years went by, he never did figure it out. He had, he had to ask Eddie Murphy, what the heck were they saying? Kellyman, court and all that. What were they saying? That the court that they had, you see, which was very important for people to have the weekly report of what happened at the Friday court. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, the very they were, what the news vendors were doing, the news buyers were doing, is they were telling the people, you know, that the court was in the edition. And Mrs. Coffey would come to the Kellyman, then again to Jimmy Lavin, in the back, and would say... When the papers were all sold on Saturday evening, whatever it would be, the Mrs. Coffey and her husband would come through with a truck, a hand truck. You know what a truck is? And in it she would have coins, maybe she sold. It was in dozens that time. There was not in tens. And there was so many dozen papers. She might sell a couple of hundred dozen carrymen. And then the money, they were all paid sixpence maybe for the carrymen or shilling. But and all that money was put into a baby carabobo and put over to Jimmy Lavin and she plucked at the door and poor old Jimmy would have to come in and try and count her. But I mean, we were being paid anyway, you know, and they, they were glad to get the money. But it was always in coins and on a Friday night, poor old Jimmy, he was filthy, <laughs> counting the money. It's a pity Jimmy isn't alive. Mm-hmm. He had some stories about Mrs. Coffey. Mm-hmm. Because if you hadn't the accounts, Straight, then no one wants to know why. Why are they selling my paper and I'm not being paid for it? <laughs> but Jimmy, anyway, but he was, Jimmy was conscientious as Dan was. Jimmy was in all nights. Jimmy's hours were extraordinary. <laughs> anyway, that was the story of the, of the court and all in it. I'll tell you as much as quickly as I can. In Dingle, Josie O'Connor was one of the news agents. She got 30 dozen Kerrymans per week, three weeks out of the four. On the fourth Wednesday of every month, the court was held in Dingle. Now, Michael Galvin would come with me. He was the reporter. He was my cousin as well. I would drive into Dingle. I would drop Michael in the street. He'd go to the court, and I'd go off doing my business around Dingle. I'd go on the west. And when I would come back, then Josie O'Connor would say to me, where's Michael? Tell him not to go home until I see him. I tell Mike, what was on today, Michael, you see? Was there any juicy bits, you see? And Michael would tell her what was coming up, and she'd call me, and then she'd say, I want to increase the Kerryman now, this week, by three dozen, by four dozen, you see? Now, I came home, and I had to explain to Dan Nolan why it wasn't that four dozen sold every week. What could we do? But the position was that if you were living... You had to be three miles from each agent. There had to be three miles between the news agents. And Josie O'Connor then, and you had this this ball. There were three miles. The people living in the Dingle side would come in, mm-hmm. and I'd buy the Kerryman, and you'd buy the Sunday Independent that night. And the neighbours, then on maybe on Monday, I'd give you my Kerryman, and you'd give me your Independent. But on the fourth. Wednesday, because of the court case, and that Friday then, they couldn't wait to see how much trouble the neighbour was in, and then she sell an extra three or four dozen. There'd be 36 papers. 
because of the court. I, I missed missed the, the the family feel of ownership that we had in the Norland time. I still remember it vividly, and it was a busy, very interesting time, and the buzz of both getting news, a newspaper produced and all the rest of the production, because there was quite a bit of job printing and book and magazine production. Uh, that was a fascinating side of the business, and I think the constraints of having a weekly deadline. There was always a great buzz uh, on a Thursday when the presses ran, and everybody's effort for the week, it was... A, it was very few jobs have that, where there's a finish, a definite finish. And when the presses roll and the papers go out the bank door, you know, that's a week finished, you know, and you're starting on to the next week immediately. Uh, so th th it's a great achievement, and that buzz drives a lot of newspaper men because it's an amazing fact. My, my son has gone back. He's in the Kerryman now, believe it or not. I went into a, what was one of the best provincial newspapers in the country, it was so regarded at that time, and, and I believe rightly so. It was one of the great newspapers of Ireland at the time, of the regional press. And it had a great reputation, mainly because it was owned by Dan Nolan, who was a consummate newspaper man, and it had an excellent team of journalists. It was a great place for a young person to start in journalism. In those days, you didn't have many formal courses in journalism. Nowadays, it's a postgraduate course in many cases, or else you can do a three or four year degree in journalism and media. Those days you didn't. My training basically was shorthand and typing. I mm -hmm. spent about six or eight months doing a course in shorthand and typing. And I read a few books in journalism and the theory of journalism, but I never, I didn't really learn anything until I was on the job. I mean, the Kerry members regarded it absolutely as the gospel, going back to years like. The gospel, you know. We've come to the end of this week's podcast, made in conjunction with the Kerryman newspaper. Some of the voices that you've been listening to have since passed away, but their stories and memories live on. And if you would like to listen to any of the full interviews, you can do so by visiting our website at www.irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe. And I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. 
Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.